I don't know if you see the moral dichotomy that exists within our culture as I do, but it was on full display this particular week. Uh, On one side of the coin, we live in a society that frowns on people who make moral judgments. As a matter of fact, anytime a Christian points out the blatant immorality or the dangerous trends that might exist within politics or the media, the Hollywood community, we're often silenced as Christians. Silenced by an avalanche of accusations, of being judgmental, of bigotry or intolerance. And yet, the irony to all of this is that when a public figure does something wrong, and it's generally perceived as being comical, our society has zero problems, not only making moral judgments, but destroying that person publicly. Let me give you an example. According to a recent study, an astounding, this blew my mind, an astounding 50% of American adults have sexted and or presently contain compromising sexual content on their phones. Even crazier, 16% have actually sent sexual content content to a complete stranger. Like, these little devices, so much danger, right? And while I'm sure, like me, you have seen story after story presented in the news defending people's privacy, right? The right to exchange sexual content without fearing some form of prejudice, you've probably not seen journalistic presentations of the moral dangers of sexting and how it can absolutely destroy a person's marriage, a person's family, a person's life, unless the man whose sexting pictures hit the internet has the last name, Wiener, goes by the alias Carlos Danger, and in addition to being politically politically active in New York, just so happens to be married to presidential candidate Hillary Clinton's most trusted advisor, Huma Abedin. This week, in the wake of yet another picture, yielding to an entire new round of sexting allegations, from Twitter, to the major news networks, to talk radio, the entire week has been filled with wall-to-wall coverage of the most recent moral indiscretions of Anthony Weiner. Not only has the commentary been brutal, I mean it has, but I've been struck by the fact that I have seen zero public concern for the embarrassment this has caused his wife, will at some point, someday, cause his young son. I've seen no compassion for how his actions have destroyed his marriage, the severe damage this particular sexual proclivity is inflicting in the life of a man who seriously has a problem. Now, don't get me wrong. Because of the high-profile nature of the people involved, I'm not saying the story wasn't newsworthy. However, what really irritated me this week, what just didn't sit well, was the glee in which the story was reported by virtually everyone in the amoral media. Just 
just Google. I, I didn't feel comfortable putting any of the newspaper headlines on the screens in church. But just Google New York Post and the headlines. It's, it's absolutely insane. The amoral media making a moral judgment and destroying a man in the process. The truth is I saw zero compassion in the way the story was reported and instead witnessed nothing but a judgmental media finding hilarity and another man's moral failure when half of America commits the same sin. Now, before we become indignant, I'm afraid to say the institutional church can be equally savage and in many ways operate in the very same dichotomy. Aside from the more public spectacles that occur when a high-profile pastor is exposed for having a moral failure, I have personally seen the local assembly of the church be equally merciless. How heavy-handed the church can be to those who've been divorced or are presently living in a failed marriage. How quickly the church castigates those who fall into sexual sin or are struggling with the taboo of same-sex attraction. How fast the church judges the woman who's had an abortion. Or on the flip side, the single mom who's had the child outside of wedlock. How immediate the church is in blaming the parents whose children have gone wayward or how the church openly ostracizes those within her ranks who fail to conform to their version of orthodoxy. That Christians don't drink or vote Democrat or watch Game of Thrones. The reality is that there tends to be very little difference in how the church handles our own Carlos dangers. It's a sad indictment. But Christians are one of the few groups of people who tend to eat their wounded. Let me say that again. Christians are one of the few groups of people who tend to eat their wounded. Today, how many people are there no longer in our ranks? Why? Because it was the church that executed them. How many people are no longer serving Jesus in the ministry? because the church lynched them in the public square and refuses to give them a second chance. How many refugees sit outside the church today because we've built a wall to keep them out? Could it be that the American church hasn't faced open persecution from the enemy because we're doing a good enough job slaughtering our own sheep? That the wolf has no need to pick off the weak because the herd is all too quick to plate them up as a meal for the enemy? As sad a reality that it is, the truth, the truth is that many of you have probably stumbled into the doors of our church because you were ushered out of the doors of another. Now, that's not to say you were asked or forced to leave. But if you were honest, you left because you knew that there was a time for a change. 
that it had become abundantly clear that you were no longer welcomed where you were. Because of your DUI, maybe the fact that you were divorced, that in a moment of weakness you committed adultery or had a child out of wedlock, the fact that, that you're having a real hard time kicking your smoking habit, or do you dare challenge the doctrinal norm of a church, or heaven forbid, said something moronic on Facebook, which is all of us. That's what Facebook is for, saying things that are stupid. But regardless of all of these things, you just knew. You knew deep in your own gut, the pit in your belly, that beyond the chances of you ever getting involved in a ministry role being nil, that at that church, because of these things, you would always live with this stigma. You'd never be able to escape. Almost as though every time you went to church, you felt like people saw you as Pigpen from Charlie Brown. You know, that no matter where you went, always, there was this cloud of controversy following you. This morning, we're going to examine what I believe to be one of the most fascinating stories maybe in the whole Bible, but at least the book of Genesis. And it's fascinating to me because it addresses this very topic of how we're called to handle the person in our tent who's made a mistake. As far as the way we'll approach the text this morning, we're going to first discuss exactly what happened, and then we're going to look at two very different reactions. Let's dive in. Genesis chapter 9, verse 18. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. We'll get, that to next, we'll get into that next week as we get into chapter 10. But we're told that Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And Noah said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Well, Noah lived after the flood 350 years, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Our story here begins with a very interesting scene. We're told, in a very simple manner, that Noah... He began to be a farmer, right? And as a result, he planted a vineyard, drank of the wine, and was drunk. Now this word drunk, it means he was drunk. Like in the Hebrew, it means he's intoxicated. Now please understand, and, and for obvious reasons, as you'll see in a few minutes, I need to be crystal clear on one point. While there is zero prohibition when it comes to drinking alcohol in scripture. Jesus drank wine. There is a clear 
an undeniable prohibition against drunkenness. It's unequivocal. It is in stone. Getting sloshed is wrong. Getting hammered, indefensible. As they once said in deep Appalachia, getting full of that Mountain Dew is simply not okay. And on a side note, that's where Mountain Dew comes from. It was Mountain Brewed Moonshine. I came across that in my studies this week. I was like, I want cool ways to say that you got hammered. And so I started Googling it, and, and full of Mountain Dew came up, and I was like, that's awesome. I got to include that in the Bible study. Anyway, we'll move on. There's no doubt, right? No doubt. Noah here, he's made a mistake. A clear mistake. It wasn't that he drank of the wine. It's that he got drunk. That was the problem. And in some regards, you can imagine a lot of the burdens that Noah carried, right? I mean, he built a boat, the door shut, and he heard the screams of all of humanity dying. That's brutal, right? I mean, the, th the images that that man had to carry with him. Obeying the Lord, following the Lord, but he's still. Like you can somewhat relate. You could identify. <laughs> he wanted a little wine. Could you really blame him? And yet, with all that being said, the purpose of this story and the reason that this story is included in the Genesis record really has nothing to do with what Noah did and instead has everything to do with what was done to Noah. The purpose of this story is to explain to us why it was that this man Canaan was cursed and Shem and Japheth blessed. We'll unpack that a bit more in a minute. Now notice what happened after Noah drank of the wine and was drunk. Like, let's really get into what happened here. We're told because of this, he became uncovered in his tent. In the original language, a better translation for became uncovered would be to be uncovered. The text here doesn't specifically explain how this occurred, what happened, other than the fact that from Noah's reaction, this uncovering doesn't appear to be accidental. Now consider that when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him, did you notice what he does? He cursed, not Ham, but instead Ham's son, Canaan. Now, in, in order for you to understand what had been done to him, we must first identify who the young son, the younger son, happens to be. In the Hebrew, this phrase, younger son, the phrase is often translated in Scripture as younger, but its literal meaning is actually small, small son. Now, if you consider that Ham is not actually the youngest son of Noah. He's, he's in actuality the middle son. We're, we're given an order every time they're mentioned. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? Which is probably a reverse order, placing the most significant son first. In Genesis chapter 10, verse 21, we're actually told that Japheth was Shem's older brother, only to then in the list, the table of nations, place him first, Ham second, Shem last. Ham's not the younger son. It may be 
that because Canaan was the first of Noah's grandchildren, he's the first mentioned, and our text, he's over and over and over again pointed out, right? Ham, and then qualified, you know, whose son was Canaan. It's not outside of the realm of possibility that upon awakening from this drunken slumber, Noah was keenly aware that he had been uncovered, and then because he curses Canaan, that Canaan had done something to uncover him. Now, there's no doubt, Ham. Ham failed to handle this situation in an appropriate way. We'll get to that. But the implications of Canaan being cursed by Noah instead of Ham implies that the young son, the younger son, the instigator of the uncovering, that this was what Noah realized had been done to him and not instead Ham's actions. And keep in mind, what's occurring here, it's not as though Canaan and then Ham are playing a joke on their, on their father, Canaan's grandfather. Like this is, you know, some type of practical hilarity. Like judging by Noah's swift reaction, right, when he wakes, it seems that something nefarious and perverse had been done to him. The key clue to this point is the use of two words throughout our passage, right? You might have noticed them. Two words, uncovering, right, and nakedness. Did you notice them? Used throughout. See his father's nakedness, the uncovering, the nakedness of his father. Now keep in mind, whatever happened to Noah, he knew what had happened when he awoke. Now in describing the wickedness of incestual perversions, God would say this in Leviticus 18, verses 6, 7, and 8. And just kind of pay attention to the key words. God says, None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. The nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover it is your father's nakedness. You, you see that maybe there's an implication that what was done here was a little more perverted than what the text just initially reads is. Once again, the point here. The passage exists. It's included by Moses to explain that something here happened to Noah so severe, so perverted, so wicked, that he would immediately curse this man Canaan and all of his subsequent generations. And why is that important? Well, Moses and the children of Israel, after being delivered from Egypt, are making their way to the land of promise, right? The land that God had promised their forefathers. The land also known as what? Canaan. Why? Because this man Canaan's subsequent generations settled into the land of promise. And so Moses is letting God's people know that this land, the people in this land, they've been cursed, cursed by God. They are not blessed. This is an important context. Now, sadly, upon discovering what had happened to Noah, the text informs us that Canaan's father, Ham, he equally acted in a deplorable and shameful way, doesn't he? Look at the text again. 
we read that Ham saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, the way that that reads in the English, it seems all innocent. However, the word saw, that Ham saw the nakedness of his father, it implies that he stood there gawking, that he was staring at his father before then going and telling his brothers about what he had just seen. Additionally, this word told doesn't mean that Ham just informed his brothers of what had happened to to their father, but rather he told them with a measure of glee, of delight. In a sense, Ham, instead of reprimanding his son Canaan and immediately and lovingly caring for whatever his father was dealing with, he chose instead to make fun of his father's nakedness. Like this situation, Cain's behavior was something Ham found to be funny, something he found amusing. Honestly, I think Noah, I think Noah gets a terrible rap for this story. Like I've heard people describe Noah in all kinds of condescending ways. I've heard people use this text, this story, to make the case that alcohol tarnished his witness his life of obedience, that for Noah, this mistake was the one lasting tarnish on a rather perfect record. I've heard people use this story to rail against the dangers of drinking, as well as the pervasiveness of alcoholism in America, which, on a side note, I would agree should be discussed way more often within the church community, but with a more biblically sound perspective. And yet, I think the way that Noah is portrayed in the story is not fair to Noah. Look look at it again. All the passage says, all the passage says, Noah was a farmer, planted a vineyard, and drank too much. Then the story immediately transitions off of Noah to how he was subsequently taken advantage of. While it's true, many use this story to emphasize how wrong Noah was getting drunk in his tent. These same people overlook the reality that the text, divinely inspired scripture, notice what it doesn't do. It doesn't refer to Noah's behavior as being wicked. Do you find it? I don't. Nor does it classify any of his activities as even being sinful. Now, once again, getting drunk is a sin. The Bible's clear. But in regards to this passage, that's not the emphasis. What Noah did is not the point. As a matter of fact, the truth is that Noah, even after getting hammered, still possessed the moral authority to bless and curse his sons. Now, it's true. Noah made a mistake. And if I sound like a broken record, I am for obvious reasons. I can't emphasize this point enough. Nothing good results when you find yourself DEFCON 1. Just don't do it. Don't get drunk. The Bible says time and time again that we're all called, all of us, to be sober-minded. However, it should be pointed out that Genesis 6 which is a couple hundred years before this event, 
How is Noah presented to us? We've mentioned this before, that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And from that grace, we're told that Noah was a righteous man, a perfect man in his generation, a man who walked with God. What shouldn't be overlooked, and few pastors mention this, is that even in light of Noah's lapse in judgment, God's grace in his life remained unshakable. Noah's favor and the eyes of God, immovable. God's pleasure in Noah, sure. Noah's righteousness, secure in the eyes of the Lord. As C.H. McIntosh writes concerning Noah, he says, divine grace had covered all his sins and clothed his person with a spotless robe of righteousness. Though Noah exposed his nakedness, God did not see it. For he looks not at him in the weakness of his own condition, but in the full power of divine and everlasting righteousness. Wow. Right? Wow. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that didn't save a perfect man like me, but a wretch. That's such a wow statement. You can spell wow backwards and forwards, and it says the same thing. Wow. Wow. Amazing. This morning, from this passage, I I just have to say it. I want you to know this morning that if you're a believer, a Christ follower, and you've blown it, in some way this week, it's okay. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's all right. It's okay. You know, God, and you can think about it. Like, what, what did you do this week? We all did something stupid. Something we've been carrying. Something even in worship we were trying to let go of. Could have been an actual deed or just a thought. And we're carrying it. But I want you to know, in light of whatever it is you're thinking about, that God is not ashamed of you. God is not ashamed. Beyond that, he's not even disappointed. The truth is that when God sees you right now, he still sees Jesus' righteousness covering you. We made the statement last Sunday that when we blow it and God sees us, you know what he sees? He just sees Jesus. That's the gospel. Like never forget this amazing reality. God's grace exists because you're not sufficient. You're insufficient. That's why God's grace exists in the first place. When you blow it, all you've done is demonstrate the unchanging truth that you desperately need more of Jesus. What made Ham's actions here so egregious was that in this moment, he wasn't seeing his father the way God did. Right? Ham handled the situation poorly because he saw his father's nakedness. He looked upon it. He gawked at it. There was a measure of delight. Rather then looking beyond his father's nakedness to see his father's righteousness. Ham's focus 
was on Noah's shortcomings instead of his right standing. And as a result, he handled this situation contrary to the way that God would have wanted him. It was all about his perspective. He failed to see, God, to see Noah the way God did. Understand, it's impossible for any of us or the church at large to handle those who've made a mistake in our tent the way that God would want us to handle those people if we're not willing to first and foremost view them through the eyes of God, to see them the way God does. In order to handle such a person in a godly way, we must be willing to look beyond a person's shame and remember their righteousness, the way that God sees them. You know, in contrast to Ham's approach, look at how Shimon Japheth deal with the situation. Not only do they refuse here to join in the ridicule of Ham, not only do they refuse to, to start mocking their father, but we're told, look at it again, that they took a garment and they, they laid it on their shoulders and they proceeded to walk backwards into the tent to cover the nakedness of their father we're told specifically their faces in the process turned away. Why? So as not to see their father's nakedness. Shem and Japheth here, they refused to gloat or judge their father's situation, choosing instead, I love this, to lovingly cover the nakedness of their father. This doesn't mean they were willfully ignorant of what had happened or that they were turning a blind eye. Instead, what's being described here are two sons who decided to handle their down-in-the-dumps dad with grace, with love. Because Shem and Japheth refused to see their father in any other way than God did, they refused to see his nakedness, choosing to recognize his righteousness. Look at how they handled the situation. Since Noah was covered by the righteousness of God, what did they do? They practically returned their father to such a place of covering. I love that. Like how interesting it is that in 1 Peter 4 verse 8, the beloved apostle, Peter, you know the man known to shoot first and aim second? That apostle who was always opening mouth, inserting foot, swallowing it the best he could. I mean, the most relatable of the apostles because he was the dumbest, really. Always blowing it. I mean, really, always blowing it. Peter, who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist, others Elijah. Some say, the, well, who do you, Peter? You're the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. And Jesus is like, right on. And then Jesus immediately starts talking about how he's going to go to Jerusalem, die three days later, and Peter pulls Jesus aside and proceeds to rebuke the Son of God. Hey, you know, we're trying to start something here, starting this church. I'm going to be the first pope. This is how this is going to roll out. Talking about dying, it just doesn't really rally an army together. And Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> like, this is Peter. Mountaintop to valley, like that, you know? Peter seasoned, 
recipient of lots and lots and lots of grace. Grace, after he discredits himself, he writes to the church and he says, and above all things, above everything I can say, have fervent love for one another. And then he quotes from Proverbs 10 verse 12, saying, for love, notice the language, will cover a multitude of sins. Friend, this is what grace does. It covers the sin of others. Now keep in mind, this idea of covering, it's really in direct contrast to the notion of exposing something or laying bare. We might say that the opposite of covering would be literally to hang someone out to dry or like him, place a person's shame and shortcomings on display for everyone to see. I hope you know, this is the truth. How you handle another person's shame reveals a lot about your own heart. So can I ask, how do you handle knowledge of another person's sin? Do you tell others? Do you sit around the dinner table and gossip about it? Is there some twisted thing that happens in your heart where you hear about someone else's shortcoming and you kind of inwardly gloat? Kind of a weird way you delight in it. Like, does another shortcoming stir within you a greater sense of moral superiority? I always knew I was better than them. Their marriage looked so pretty, looked so perfect. Ah, they just like everybody else. That there's some inward sense of moral moralism. Do you stand in the presence of other people's sin and judgment? Or, by grace, do you seek to cover them? Do you seek to cover them? Do you see them as God sees them? Do you seek to restore them to their right position? This is not you. You're covered by the righteous robes of Christ. In Galatians 6, verses 1 through 3, Paul exhorts the brethren, If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And then Paul writes, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ, the law of grace. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Here's why it's so important that we seek to cover one another even if a person doesn't deserve it. This is the truth you need to chew on. Why should we cover one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another? Because Jesus covered our sin when we didn't deserve it. Like this entire idea of covering sin, it is fundamental to the heart and the mission of Jesus. In Romans 4, Paul writes, But to him who believes on Jesus, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And then Paul quotes Psalms 32, that blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins, here it is again, are covered 
Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And this word impute, I love it. It means that you're not even going to take it into account. That when God handles you, he doesn't take into account your blunders. He doesn't impute these things to you. Not only has he forgiven you, but even when you blow it, he just sees Jesus. So why can he hold any of these things against you? You're just proving you're insufficient. To this point, I have found, and maybe some of you can relate, that it's so hard to walk in the newness of life that Jesus died to provide when there are so many people around constantly reminding you of your old life. Have you found that to be true? People who are so quick to remind you of your shortcomings, of your mistakes, so quick to hold your past over your future. Sad to say, this is often the very reason why people who stumble are so quick to leave church. They need a fresh start. And it's to that I say it's tragic. I also say, and I will, I will, I'll go out there, that I represent the other elders when I say our prayer at Calvary 316 is that we are never such a place where if someone blows it, they feel like they have to leave. I pray that we're always a community of believers that do not judge one another, especially when we blow it. But in the face of blowing it, use such opportunities to encourage each other to walk and enjoy the newness of life. That when we uncover ourselves, we're quick to cover like Jesus would. I pray our church is known as a church more interested in the person, the person you're becoming and not the one you once were. That we're a church who isn't judgmental and instead views everyone through the eyes of God. It doesn't matter what you did, what you've done, what you're doing. You are not naked. You are forgiven. Redeemed by Christ's atoning sacrifice. Set free by the blood of Jesus. Made new through the Spirit. I pray that we are a church who even when one of us stumbles and falls, inevitably, that we're quick to lovingly cover and deeply care. But consider, because of Ham's attitude, what would happen? His son would be cursed. There would be no life, no fruit, no blessing. Shem and Japheth see their father through the eyes of God, lovingly cover Demonstrate grace. And what happened? Their generations were blessed. Isn't it true that you're blessed when you handle people with the same grace God has handled you? I can hear some of you thinking, Zach, come on. Like, so are you saying here that we should turn a blind eye to sin? Sin in the camp. Seriously, shouldn't sin be exposed? In many instances, confronted, right? Called out. Yes, it is true that sin should be exposed. However, is that really your job? And beyond that, 
the greater issue is how we handle the person whose sin has been exposed. Like We don't jump around often, but, but I do need to turn your attention to a passage. John chapter 8. If you want to turn in your Bibles or scroll through your digital one. John chapter 8. I'm going to read the text. I think it's important you read along. Beginning with verse 3, we read, Then the scribes and Pharisees, the religious right, they brought to Jesus a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commands us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? And then we're told this they said, testing Jesus, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he didn't hear them. So when they continued asking him, Jesus raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up, saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Then she says, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Understand this text. It makes no excuses. It doesn't seek to justify it. This woman was indeed caught in adultery. Like whether she had been set up or had acted willingly, she had committed a very serious sin. A sin the religious establishment was ready to stone her for. They even used the Bible to justify their stoning. And yet, notice how incredibly different Jesus handles this adulterous woman. What does he do, really? They they got their rocks. They're ready to stone her. She's on the ground, and Jesus stoops down. In a sense, he covers her. He ministers to her. He demonstrates grace. You know the one person there who was without sin, who would be justified in casting the first stone and the second stone and the third stone? It would have been Jesus. But that's not what he does. I can only imagine how radically different Jesus would be addressing the Anthony Weiner situation. He would take no delight in what's happened. You know, so often, those who make such a to-do about another person's sin. They do so claiming that letting a person off the hook, it fails to hammer home the severity of that person's sin. Have you heard that? But Zach, we can't show grace because then they'll think they can get away with it in the future. The the logic follows that a healthy measure of shame will serve as a deterrent. In a sense, they're justifying Ham's behavior. 
that we should look on the nakedness. There should be shame. That's what changes a heart. And yet, if these religious men had stoned this woman, would she have been able to go and sin no more? Now she'd be dead. You see, what enabled this woman to move forward in victory, what changed her life was not greater condemnation. What changed her, what gave her the freedom and the liberty and the power to go and sin no more, it was the fact that Jesus covered her and showed amazing grace. In like manner, both Shem and Japheth were blessed because they understood, unlike Ham, that for Noah to move forward from his indiscretion, he needed to be reminded that he was righteously covered. Because these men were willing to see their father as God saw him, they were therefore able to treat him as God desired, and they were blessed. This morning, may the same be said of the way that we, the people who make up this small church, the way that we as a church community handle the fallen, the weak, the screw-up in our tent. May we see people the way Jesus sees people so that we can treat them the way Jesus would want us to. So, Father, Lord, that is what we...